Hello and welcome to the Better Human Podcast. My name is Adam Wagner and I'm a barrister specialising in human rights. And this podcast is all about human rights. This podcast was originally recorded in mid-February, just before the COVID-19 crisis hit. Um, it's an absolutely fascinating discussion with four women who are instrumental in making sure that prisons and other forms of detention settings around the UK are human rights compliant. Obviously, I recorded this podcast before COVID-19 hit and it's had a huge impact on the prison and other detention settings system. So there's a extra bit at the end of the podcast, um, which is an interview with Professor Sir Malcolm Evans, who amongst many other things is a member and chair of the UN Subcommittee for the Prevention of Torture. Um, so the first section of the podcast, which is absolutely fascinating, has four guests. Um, Alison Thompson, who's the Executive Director of the Mental Welfare Commission for Scotland, Anne Finlayson, of the Independent Monitoring Board at HM Youth Offender Institute, Cookham Wood. Dame Anne Hours, who's the chair of the Independent Monitoring Boards, former Chief Inspector of Prisons. And Louise Finer, head of the National Prevention Mechanism Secretariat. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB undergraduate course taught in London. You can gain problem-solving, debating and advocating skills through a range of experiential learning, extracurricular and professional development activities. This podcast is wholly self-funded, so if you enjoy it and find it useful, please consider giving a few pounds a month at betterhumanpodcast.com. So thanks so much for joining me. Louise, why don't you start and tell us um, what the National Preventative Mechanism is and why, why it's so important? Um, the National Preventive Mechanism is something that was set up because the UK signed up to a um, human rights treaty called the Optional Protocol to the Convention Against Torture. It's a very unusual treaty um, because it requires states to do something at national level um, to implement it. Unlike most treaties where you go to Geneva every few years as, a, as the state and you report on what you're doing, this treaty says, right, preventing ill treatment and torture in detention is extremely important. And the way that you have to prevent ill treatment in detention is by setting up what we call an, an NPM, a national preventive mechanism. And that's essentially um, a body that has the power to go into places of detention, it must be independent of government and detention authorities. Um, and it must be able to go into any place of um, detention or where people are deprived of their liberty and do that when it thinks um, it's important to go in, so do unannounced visits or inspections, um, and speak to detainees freely, um, and report on their findings. And that that is all done with reference to international human rights standards around the treatment and the um, conditions um, in detention. Now, um, the UK's National Preventive Mechanism is rather hard to understand. We are, we say, um, proudly that we are the most complicated NPM in the world. We're 21 different organisations all coming together under this, this, um, this framework. And that's because the UK already had inspectorates and visiting bodies that had been doing this kind of work for many, many years um, and in most respects already um, fulfilled the, the objectives of this treaty. They're independent bodies, bodies with the powers to enter a um, place of detention. So the UK government designated um, 
all of these organizations to form its NPM. Most states in the world, there are 71 NPMs around the world, most states have either created a new body or given powers to, to, to monitor places of detention to the, to the human rights ombudsman. We, as I say, are the most complex and the most unusual one because we're 21 separate organizations um, doing the work. And my particular role is to, to bring together the work of those organizations and, and make sure that as far as possible we're living up to the requirements of this this treaty and there are challenges to the model that, that we have here in the UK which I think we can talk about later. So just to set continue setting the scene um, when people think of someone who's detained I guess most people think probably the first thing that comes to mind is prison um, and people who, are, who have committed a criminal offence and are sent to prison. Is, is that the extent of your duties or do you have, um, is, does it go wider than that? Yeah, across all of the 21 organisations um, that form part of the National Preventive Mechanism, we have access to, to a number of different places of, of detention and as far as we're aware, all of the places of detention in the UK. I mean, one way of looking at it is the sort of kinds of places where you spend a long time and then the sort of short-term place of detention. So, you know, on the, 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 the first category, you'd have prisons, you'd have immigration removal centres, you'd have secure hospitals. Um, you know, there's a military prison in Colchester. Um, those kinds of places which are sort of what you might imagine when you think of people detained. But I think it's also really important to think about the more short-term um, places of detention. So um, when you're detained by the police and you may spend um, a few hours or overnight or sometimes over a weekend in a cell in a police station, I think um, also often forgotten are the cells that you'll find in a, in a court building where defendants are held before they go up to, up to court. Um, holding rooms at airports um, where you might be be held um, for customs reasons. Um, and then also, you know, the other place that's really important to remember is is the sort of movement between all of those places. So, you you know, you're, you'll often see those vans driving around. If you live near a prison or a, a, a big magistrate's court, you'll see see the, the vans with, with, with tinted windows. Those are places where people are detained. They're moving from, from a, a court to a prison or a police station um, and so on. Um, and then I think also really important to remember are the flights that um, where people are um, under deportation. Um, those come within the remit of some of the members, the monitoring bodies within the NPM. Um, and also um, deprivation of liberty in care homes, for example. So um, across all of the 21 organisations in the NPM, we have the ability to visit or inspect all of those types of detention and report on all of them. Um, and I think that's a really important thing. And it's quite unusual for an NPM um, to, to have access to all of those places. But I think here it's because we, we have these well-established organisations who have been doing, doing that work. And do we know how many people at any one time are, are detained in those? I mean, I imagine it's very fluid, but are roughly how many are detained in, in those situations? Well, it's interesting. We, we asked ourselves that question a few years ago, thinking that there would be a relatively simple answer. And it took us <laughs> a sort of a year of um, some quite complex um, data gathering and number crunching. Um, so we, um, the last time we did, did it, we, we, um, we looked at all of the available data from across the UK um, to try and get a picture of how many people were detained at the end of March 2017. And the number we came up with was 110,000 people um, detained across prisons, immigration removal centres, hospitals, and children in different secure settings. 
And then I think also interestingly, that figure doesn't include people going through police custody. Um, and the numbers are, I think, for us were a big surprise. Um, we found that in one year there were 841,000 de so-called detention events in police custody. So, so detentions in, in police custody in one year. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a significant scale. Um, and I think that's, you know, when you, when, you, when you get a sense of the scale and the numbers of people and individuals involved, it helps you understand why it's so important that you have these safeguards. Um, some, of the deten some of the people detained obviously will be moving from one place to another. Um, but that's an awful lot of lives and an awful lot of people. Okay, so so that's so we're talking about it's about eighty thousand in the in the prisoner state, and then on top of that, you think there's about another thirty thousand. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, and and so we've, we've talked about safeguards. What is detention monitoring, um, and why does it play a, a role, an important role in in the UK? I think obviously. Um, Detention is a context where there are particular human rights risks and challenges because by definition it's happening out of sight of the public. And also the people who are detained are often on the margins of society or they're not necessarily the most popular citizens. Um, they could be people who've committed or been accused of criminal offences, who are said to be in the country illegally, who are at risk to themselves or others because of acute mental health problems. But that makes them also uniquely vulnerable. It's a truism to say that all institutions can develop a default setting of institutional convenience. And that's much more the case in environments that operate behind closed doors. And that's why it's really important, why OPCAT is so important, um, because it shines a light into those places. And the great thing about the international framework is that it reinforces the idea that if you're monitoring detention, you actually have to be there. Because other kinds of inspection and audit can work by looking at the processes, looking at the compliance, compliance and audit and the money and, and the management and all of those things. But OPCAT requires NPM members actually to look at the outcome for and the lived experience of prisoners and those who are detained. And we have to ask ourselves not just whether it complies with standards, whether it's convenient or whether it's possible just at the moment, but we have to ask whether it's right according to international human rights standards. And as Louise has said, it has to be preventive. Um, you're operating upstream of torture and inhuman and degrading treatment. You're looking at whether the cultures and the way people are treated and the failings that could actually, at the end of the road, lead to inhuman and degrading treatment or torture. And as I said, you cannot do that without being there, without talking to the people who are in detention and seeing how they live and seeing how they're treated. I'm interested in that point about being upstream of torture and inhuman and degrading treatment because I suppose there's a few things floating around. One thing is that I think some people think prison is a place where people should suffer. Um, and... That is the sort of, you know, the, this classic debate we have about what, what prisons are for. Are they punishment? Are they rehabilitation? And and that side of things. And I guess, and and, and, the, and they might think, well, you're going to be treated badly in prison. That's the, that's the point. Um, but I think that, do you think that's a fair description of what prisons are about now from your experience do you think that, that the staff in prisons are looking to punish people or are they looking to do something different 
I think, by and large, they're looking to do something different. Whether they've got the resources to do that and the training to do that um, and the capacity to do that is a different matter. But I think it's a truism to say that people are sent to prison as punishment and not for punishment. Um, the punishment is being there. Um, and, and actually, if you create a situation where you treat people as badly as you can because you've got power over them, what kind of message is that sending to people about how they should behave when they leave prison? Um, you're trying to use it as a space and as a space to deal with the problems that have got people there, whether those, whether those are about substance misuse, whether it's about childhood experiences, whether it's about um, the, the, the peer groups that people have got into and the ways of behaving, you've got that space. And if you don't use it, um, all that will happen is that prisons will increasingly have revolving doors and those people will be out doing the same things and back in prison very quickly. So I do think, I think the prison system I mean, has as its aim and its principle that it is about creating that space. The question is whether it's always able to do so in light of the resources it's got, the people that it's looking after, um, and the training that we give our staff. And, and Anne, what, what's your role in, the, in, that, in that big picture? I've had two roles in relation to prisons. Um, for nine years, I was the chief inspector of prisons. So we were inspecting prisons, immigration detention facilities, and latterly police cells. So three of the areas that Louise has just referred to. And at the moment, I'm the national chair of what are called the independent monitoring boards. And they are groups of citizens, of unpaid public appointees, who have the right at any time to go into the, their, their local prison, the prison that is most local to them, or the immigration detention facility most local to them um, and uh, and they are there every week of the year. We worked out um, last week that at any one time there are probably 140 unpaid IMB members in prisons right now um, talking to prisoners, working out what's going on, dealing with individual complaints and reporting back on what they find. So, so these are people who are taking time out, out of their lives, not being paid, to go into prison. That's right. To, to speak to prisoners and to try and um, improve conditions for prisoners. And there are about 1,300 of them, and they do about 51,000 visits to prisons um, and uh, probably about 9,000 places of immigration detention every year. And, and they must get something out of it. They must en enjoy it to an extent to, to want to do that. I think they do. Uh, Anne is probably the best person to to carry on this conversation okay. and say exactly what she does and why she does. So, so, so let's talk to to Anne, to the other Anne. Do you want to just give a sort of introduction to how you, what you do, and how you got involved? Absolutely. Doing it um, as Anne said, um, IMB members are independent, unpaid volunteers, and I think. Uh, People often think it's the cutting edge of volunteering. It's uh, not like you're, what most people would think of as volunteering. And IMB members are the eyes and ears of the general public in closed situations where things can happen out of sight. And as Anne said previously, um, the IMB members carry keys. They have access to every area of a prison and can visit at any time. So, we, so you have a key in your house? We draw keys, as prison officers do. We have a prison belt, and we then go into the prison. Uh, we can go in at any time of day or night unannounced, uh, which is important. It gives us a 
a feel for the whole prison and how it's working, a, a finger on the pulse, as it were, um, so that we really uh, are looking and listening and talking to prisoners and talking to staff. So getting a much more hands-on feel than the rigid structure of an inspection process. So we are the eyes and ears of the local public in closed institutions. And you asked why I went into it. I worked in children's health services for a long time and became very aware of uh, the failings of all the agencies to address problems that children present with maybe learning difficulties, mental health difficulties, which lead to exclusion from school. And I'm talking about working in a youth offending establishment. So my interest came from seeing children who had problems, were excluded from school, started to become to the attention of the other agencies, the police, and ended up in prison. So when I stopped working full-time and I saw a vacancy for an IMB member at Cook and Wood, uh, I was really keen to follow up on my previous interest in what happens to the children who were not rescued by the services in the community. And, and I mean, I, I have... Some experience of prisons. I go. I go fairly often to prisons, and I come into contact with prisons. And it seems like the mental health side of the picture is is just an over, almost overwhelming one um, in, in in all prisons now. I think I think that is the case. I can only speak from my experience in a, a youth establishment where it isn't just the mental health issues, although those are really important. And many of the, the children, and they are children in young offenders institutions, um, have not had access to community mental health services. Ironically, they actually get pretty good services now when they're in custody. But there are other issues. Life experience is one, and some of the children who are in custody have had the most damaging life experience. And when they come into custody, we're talking about the most damaged vulnerable and challenging group of children in the country and they need to be managed and handled with care and given access to support services and education and rehabilitation and part of the well the key role of being an IMB member is to monitor and ensure the humane and fair delivery of the services to people in custody and ensure that they're getting access to the resettlement and re-education programs to help them towards release, or in the case of some of the young people, their progression through into the adults' prison system. And just give me a, a, an insight into when you do an inspection. So, so do you wake, wake up in the morning or the middle of the night and think, today I'm, I'm, I, I fancy popping down to Cock and Wood to see how things are going? Or do you, do you plan it? Do you plan it with other people? There are, at Cook and Wood, 10 members of the Independent Monitoring Board, and there is always one member who is technically on duty on call. And during the week on duty, you would make two planned visits in that you know broadly what you're going to have a look at. But it doesn't... Sometimes, I, as you would say, I would, would wake up and think, yes, I think I need to go in today. There's been something going on there. I really think I need to have a look and see, or perhaps we want to do a nighttime visit because there have been things going on at night that we're not quite sure about. So we can and be how flexible. How would that information come to you? There are daily briefing sheets in the prison system, and we have access to the prison system. We come into the prison, we draw the keys, as anybody, any other member of staff would do. 
go into the office, open up the computer system and have access to the daily briefing sheets, which tells you all the information that you would need to know on a day-to-day -day basis. So the number of prisoners, where they're located, the number of prisoners who are on um, care documents, prisoners in segregation. And then there is a list of the incidents that have occurred during the previous 24 hours, the regime that's been taken place, any regime restrictions, and the staffing as well. So it gives you a really good picture of things that have been going on in the previous 24 hours. And that will inform what you go and have a look at, who you might speak to. We're able to speak to prisoners, staff, anybody within the prison, so you can get a really good rounded picture. Although there are some challenges about seeing some of the prisoners who are on several officer, who require several officers to unlock their cells. Prisoners can, ask to, can and do ask to speak to us privately if they've got concerns about an issue that hasn't been addressed in the prison. But there are some challenges about that because there are groups of prisoners where this is, for safety reasons, not possible. But where we possibly can, we talk to them separately and privately. Okay, and Alison, do you want to talk about, about your role and, and how you got involved? Okay, I think I'll tell you a little bit first about the organisation I work for, because I imagine most people, even those around the table, may not have heard of the organisation I work for. It's called the Mental Welfare Commission for Scotland. And it's an unusual organisation. And while Louise and, and Anne's have been talking mainly about prisons, the organisation I work for, our, our prime focus, our prime function is set out to protect and promote the human rights of people with, with mental illness and with learning disability. And visiting people in prison is, is one way that we do that. Uh, there are various other things that we do to try to carry out our functions, but visiting is one of the main things that we do. And we visit people with mental illness, learning disability, whether they are in hospital, some of them will be in prisons, young offenders institutions, some may be in care homes, and some may actually be subject to very high levels of restrictions in their own homes as well. So we have a visit, an annual visiting programme. I think it's important to point out where we're not inspectors, we're not regulators, we're an independent body, though we are funded by Scottish Government, and we're a statutory body, so we're there because the Mental Health Act in Scotland says there will be a Mental Welfare Commission, and it's the Mental Health Act that gives us our powers of entry to interview in private anybody with a... The, the Act talks about mental disorder, which I know people aren't keen on that term, and I completely understand that. So apologies if I talk about mental disorder. It's really just an umbrella term for mental illness, learning disability, and personality disorder. So apologies if I, if, if I, fall, if I fall into that. But we carry out what we call local visits, which may look like inspections to people, about 100 of those a year to hospitals, prisons, and other facilities across Scotland. And what, what's your sort of day-to-day -day role and what, how do you play your part? My particular role in that is that I'm one of the executive directors at the Commission and my background is I'm a mental health nurse. 
And I've been at the Commission for a few years now, and I lead on our visiting programme. So it's really part of my role to help us to decide where we're going to visit and when we're going to visit. And we were hearing from Anne about, about the prison monitors, about how you decide about when to visit someplace. And that's something we really tried our best to do to make sure that our, our visiting is proportionate. So it should be based on information that we're receiving from lots of other agencies. It's based on information we receive from people who use the services, from their carers, so consultation events that we have with them about that. Other information, the, the Commission operates, for example, a, a telephone advice service, and we quite often get people with lived experience and carers phoning in, and we start to build up intelligence about a service, and that helps us to think, when should we visit? Although most of our visits are planned and they're planned well in advance, we're also able, if there were particular concerns about a service, I would be able to say, actually, let's, let's not wait until the next scheduled visit. And usually we could go out within a couple of days if we felt we could get a team together and get out within a couple of days if we felt there were particular concerns that we needed to look at. And, and how does it feel walking into a prison with a team of and I guess inspectors is the wrong word, Obser observers or visitors. Yes, our, our, our visitors. They are, they are yeah. staff who are employed by the commission. So they're not, uh, they're not volunteers. They are commission employees. The vast majority of our visitors have a professional practice background. So they're psychiatrists, they're mental health nurses, they're experienced social workers called mental health officers who have a lot of experience. We also have a couple of our officers now uh, who have one who has lived experience and one who has carer experience. So when, they when you can talk about supplement. lived experience, sorry, sorry to yeah. interrupt. When you talk about lived experience, mm -hmm. um, what do you mean? Somebody who has a current mental illness and somebody who is currently using services or has used services in the past. But we have an officer with lived experience. We felt that's been really important when we visit sometimes because quite often... We're going in as professionals. We've got we're bringing that professional background with us, and quite often he is the person that people are most likely to engage with initially, and then he's able sometimes to direct us. And if people initially say, "Well, ask, well, who are you? Do I really want to see you?" and quite sometimes our officer with lived experience is able to open that gate for us to get in to make the interview a little bit more successful. And do you find that prisons welcome your visits? Prisons are a small minority of the visits we do. Of about the 100 visits a year, I'd say probably about 90 are to hospitals. Maybe only about four or five are to prisons. Of course, there's a, a much, much smaller prison population in Scotland. Generally, though, the prisons tend to be welcoming. The prisons, our visits to prisons are announced so they, they know that we are coming on that particular day. We quite often find it quite difficult to get the numbers of prisoners to meet with that we want to because they're the people that give us the information. What they tell us informs our reports and informs our recommendations. So for us, sometimes it's making sure we're getting to the right people, to the right prisoners we want to meet with. One of the concerns, and, and we've heard about, about the high levels of mental illness, also high levels of, of learning difficulties as well with prisoners. One of the things that we're particularly interested in just now is making sure that when people are very, very mentally unwell, that there is a quick route for them 
out of prison and into hospital. That's causing a lot of difficulties, I think it's fair to say, in, ho in Scotland just now, making sure people have access quickly to hospital care when they need it. So that's a piece of work that we are looking at just now, particularly in relation to women. But I imagine my colleagues here at the table as well have probably experienced very similar. I, th I think in, in, in hospitals, hospitals were more likely to visit on an unannounced basis. And that can range from acute adult psychiatric wards at the local hospital up to the highest level of security of hospitals eh, in Scotland as well. People tend to be, staff are all, always more welcoming <laughs> than I expect them to be when we turn up unannounced. I often put myself in the same position and think, would I have been as welcoming? But staff genuinely seem to appreciate when we do come unannounced. There are, there are disadvantages of that as well. You, you want people sometimes to know that you're coming so they can have support there to meet with you if, if they want that. So there's, there's pros and cons, I think, of uh, both sides. But mainly in relation to, to, to prisons, they, they, they tend to know that we're coming and what we want to do and who we want to meet with. And just picking up on that point about mental health and about the interaction between medical care and, I guess, prison, prison security... Um, this is something which I found surprising when I first came into prison work is how much of what happens in prison connects to the mental health care to people who are um, who are put under special monitoring because they're having mental health issues or threatening self-harm and suicide. Does that, do you, do you think that creates a, a pressure on the prison system, which is, which it, which is being handled or is it something which um, is needs more work? I think it's being handled, but I think that you only need to go into prisons to know that there are people there who sh simply should not be in prison. Prisons are not therapeutic environments. They're not designed to be therapeutic environments and they aren't. And I think one of the really concerning things is the number of people in prisons whose primary problem is a mental health issue. And the more acute your mental health issue, the deeper your confinement is going to be because you're likely to find yourself in a segregation unit. So the iller you are, the more extreme the prison conditions you will be in. And huge difficulties, as Alison has said, in transferring people to secure mental hospitals because those mental hospitals can say no and they do say no. And also what they sometimes do is they take people can compulsorily treat them and say, oh, they're better now, they can go back into prison, uh, where they deteriorate, of course. And particularly issues which, which Anne Finlayson will have come across of children, because children and adolescent mental health, health services simply can't cope with those needs. And even if they can, those, those facilities are often many miles away from where those children and their families are. So prisons are soaking up. I think, problems which are not being dealt with, where there is not proper resource to deal with them in the places where they should be. And, and that's a sort of self-perpetuating cycle because people come in and out of the prison system and are treated as criminals rather than people with, with, with severe mental health issues. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, there, there, there will be people who have committed criminal offences, otherwise they wouldn't be ending up in prison. But the root cause... Is is I mean can be can be substance abuse, mental health, or a mixture of the two, 
um, you know, people self-medicating um, because they've got mental health issues or people having mental health issues because of substance abuse problems. And actually, we are not dealing... If we're talking about a national preventive mechanism, what we're not doing is the preventive work and also the aftercare work that would be necessary, really, for, for those people to get better. What kind of preventative work do you think would, would be a, a reasonable approach? Well, looking at primary mental health services, looking at drug rehabilitation services, drugs which which are declining because local authorities don't have the resources that they should have. So, so actually dealing, you know, dealing with the issue before it becomes an acute crisis. And then I think what what is so important about the framework that we operate within this this optional protocol to the Convention Against Torture um, is that it's. Um, it's really the only bit of the international framework that focuses on prevention rather than what you do um, after a human rights violation has occurred or, or how you define a human rights violation. I think it's remarkable that you know this um, important and, and in, in so many ways groundbreaking human rights framework that we all operate within um, is so little focused on stopping bad things from happening um, and I think um, you know the fact that that this treaty um, came out of um, the the initial prohibition of torture and, and essentially said well prohibition is extremely important and um, there are concrete things that states must do to prohibit torture but it's not enough you have to do more to prevent torture and ill treatment. I think that's a, a really, really important idea. And then to say that there is a specific way of doing that, which is essentially what, what all of us are involved in on a day-to-day -day basis, which is going into places of detention when we think it is important to, to go and check up on people, um, that that's a safeguard that you have to have in place, I think is, is such a, a, a significant um, idea within the whole international human rights framework. And it's really unusual that a state um, has so much of this going on in the UK. I mean, we, we are, you know, I speak to, to other national preventive mechanisms around the world um, that, that can't even begin to dream of the amount of resource that we put in in the UK into having volunteer visitors going into prisons and inspectorates with well-trodden, well-respected procedures whose reports get into the media and, and so on. It's, it's very much part of the fabric, I think, of our institutional framework in the UK. And of course, there are ways of improving it. And we must always be thinking about how we strengthen the safeguards that we have. Um, but I think it's a very, very important thing that we have here in the UK and an experience that other countries Do, do you think do. The, the volunteer model mm. is part of the reason it, it can continue because you can't stop, you can't take resources away from volunteers, as it were? I mean, I suppose you, they cost something. You can. I mean, I think... I think you can, I think, sorry, you can I think, take resources I think away. there's a notion that volunteer, volunteer means free, and it doesn't. It's not a free good. I mean, Anne and her colleagues do what they do because... We have a secretariat that carries out 117 recruitment campaigns every year to get people to do this very difficult job, provides them with the information they need, the training that they need, um, and, and support. So I think it's, it's a, I mean, certainly we are, we are a cheap resource, but we are not a free resource. Um, but I think, I think good that, your good value, I we suppose. We are extraordinarily good value. Than cheap, yeah. Absolutely, <laughs> very extraordinarily good value. We reckon that we provide the equivalent of about 110 full time equivalent posts. Um, for the Ministry of Justice. So we're not doing badly. 
Um, but I, I do think, I mean, I think the combination of the kind of professional approach that Alison's described and that the inspectorate do and those occasional visits by people who do can do an in-depth look at what's going on and the work of volunteers who whose who's kind of USP is that they're in in the place every week so that you can give they can give some sort of real-time information about what's going on right now um, but also the fact that they're volunteers I mean I've often said that um, people who are in prison have to be there the staff are paid to be there but Anne and her colleagues choose to be there and that for prisoners and detainees is I think quite important that somebody has chosen to be there um, to, to to check on what's happening to them and when when you see something that's going wrong in in your eyes what do you do about it and how can you make sure that your observation is acted on in a number of ways. Uh, the person who's on duty for the week is responsible for writing a report of the key issues that have occurred during the week, the highs and lows, because there are some good practices going on and successes, and we have to celebrate those as well as the issues that we're highlighting. Once a month, we meet as a, a board with the prison governor who has received the reports every week, and it is expected that he will, he or she will come with the answer to some of the questions we've posed uh, and we discuss it as a group. If, however, when you're walking around, there's something that really worries you, you go straight away and speak to the duty governor and say, actually, I don't really like the look of this. Can you tell me what's going on here? So we've got various ways of feasing back and we communicate with each other as board members and with the senior staff at the prison. The other element we have is an annual report, um, which Anne and her team oversee to make sure that we're all uh, covering it in the most appropriate way. And this report goes to the Secretariat and then goes to the Secretary of State. So the key points are raised at the very highest level. And as a board, um, we have raised some pretty important issues in the past couple of years, which uh, we feel have finally been taken on board at a fairly senior level. And I, I don't know if you want me to talk about yeah, that just I mean, now. Yeah, why not give it an um, example or two? One of the key examples of things that have been really worrying us, there are an increasing number of boys in the case of the prison that I visit who are in prison for lengthy sentences and by that it can be 15, 20 years and these are children. There is a central planning for where the children are allocated to prison places, there's a, um, a resettlement plan when they're in the youth estate, they attend education, they're supported but there is no central planning for the movement of this increasing number of the most damaged and challenging young people moving through into the young adult estate and also the adult estate. And we've been really concerned about this for uh, over a year and have been raising it. Uh, the numbers are quite significant. Um, the, uh, the capacity of Cook and Wood is 188. And when we last looked, there were 30 boys who were over 18. Now, boys can stay in the youth estate until 18 years and 10 months. And those who've got a 
a detention and training order or a shortish sentence will stay there to complete their sentence. But those who are going to progress into the adult estate, there is no central planning for that movement. And as a result, there are boys held in segregation in the youth estate for their safety, but more particularly for the safety of the children who are in the youth estate. And we've been flagging this in, in a major way through our rotor reports, through our annual report. And in the last week or two, we have been informed that the, there are discussions going on between the youth estate and the prison management unit, prisoner management unit, to allocate prisoners to the young adult estate. And we've felt this has really been a major issue that has not been taken on board until now. And Alison really the same question it, when you when you go in and you see you think something is going wrong how difficult or straightforward is it to check to get something changed it was much as Anne described actually much as Anne described there where we go in and we find immediate concern so say for example somebody was detained and we couldn't find the correct mm -hmm. paperwork we felt it was an issue of de facto detention, something that we would deal with immediately. We'd make sure that the patient also had access to independent advocacy. They were given access to legal advice and support. We would speak to senior managers on the day as well. We would satisfy ourselves that as much could be done, was done on the day. We also produce a report following the visit as well, which is a summary of everything that we found, what people told us. And we can make recommendations in those reports. We also publish those reports. They've only been published now for about two years. Previously, they just went from the commission to the managers of the service, but we felt they had to be transparent and in the public domain. So they are now published. If we make a recommendation, we ask the service involved to respond to that recommendation within three months. So these are things that aren't immediately urgent. They need attended to, but they're not immediately urgent to do. And we would give the service three months to respond to those, but, but sooner if it, was, if it was something more concerning. We review those responses when we receive them to decide whether they're adequate. Sometimes three months isn't enough to, to respond to a recommendation, particularly if we've made an observation perhaps about culture in an organisation. Three months is the time where we're looking for the service to say, we acknowledge what you're saying, we understand what you're saying, and we're going to get an action plan to address this. But we don't expect everything to be sorted within that three-month period. We'll also make a decision about when to visit again. So if they say we've done X in response to your recommendation, we'll decide when to visit again. And we always check to make sure that they actually did follow through on the recommendation. We get, for, for an organisation, we, we have some powers, but actually we don't have the power of enforcement to force people to change. But actually we tend to get a very good response to our recommendations, despite not having that enforcement power of the recommendations. If we are the one happy with a response, we, we, we have an escalation policy, which in the first instance would usually be at local NHS board level, so NHS local authority, chairs, chief execs. If at that point we felt we still were not getting an adequate response, we, we, can, we have an escalation policy to, to a Scottish government at that point if we felt things weren't being listened to and actioned on. And I just want to finish off by talking about human rights principles and how they impact on, on what you do. You've, you've already spoken about the, the national preventative mechanism being 
part of a preventative human rights approach, which is which is really interesting because it is different to quite a, a number of the issues that, that we I talk about on this podcast, which are usually after the event. You know, I mean, the most extreme version, I guess, with 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 prisons is inquests, which is often where mistakes are identified and hopefully um, rectified. But in in a sense, it's too late. Um, in in the most brutal sense, when somebody's died, how do you take a human rights approach, and how do you think your what you do fits into a, a an overall human rights um, principled? framework? I think um, there are two really important things because we're part of this international framework. There's, there's the human rights standards around how we do what we do. Um, and that's where the national preventive mechanism comes in. So, you know, are we sufficiently independent? Do we have all of the powers that we need? Do we have information about place of detention? Those are human rights standards in and of themselves that come out of OPCAT and we're held to account as an NPM internationally. We had a visit last year from a UN committee um, with the not so snappy title of the UN Subcommittee on Prevention of Torture and they're soon going to be writing a report about the NPM and the extent to which we meet our international obligations and one of their key recommendations um, we are almost certain is going to be that the NPM needs to be put on a statutory footing um, and that's something we agree with strongly while the 21 individual organisations within the NPM exist in statute the NPM itself doesn't and the obligations that arise through the treaty are not set out anywhere so we can't be held to account sufficiently for those responsibilities and their, their, those duties. Um, so that's the sort of the how question. And then there's the what I, what I call the what question, which is what we find in places of detention um, and the issues that we find. And we, you know, we've already heard of some, some specific issue, but there are all manner of human rights issues that we see in the different places of detention. Um, and um, there are a number of ways in, of making sure that we um, um, bring human rights directly into the work that we do. And I think one of the most important ways is that making sure that where um, that the standards that we use for our inspections or our visits, um, the prison's in inspectorate, for example, call some expectations, what we expect to see, that those standards are informed by and underpinned by international human rights standards. Um, and one really concrete example of that um, would be... Um, work that we did across the NPM looking at isolation and solitary confinement. Um, in the last few years, the definition of, in, of solitary confinement um, has been um, clarified internationally in the standard minimum rules on the treatment of, of prisoners. There's a very clear, helpful definition now um, that if you're locked up for more than 22 hours per day with no meaningful human contact, that is solitary confinement. We did a big piece of work across the NPM looking at all types of detention using that descriptive de definition um, and looking at all of the different practices that we found regardless of what they were called whether they were called um, limited regime or restricted unlock or all manner of, of in some instances quite euphemistic expressions when you looked at what was happening to that individual in practice it was solitary confinement um, and so we did a report making that um, case very strongly, and then we've developed a piece of cross-cutting guidance, the only guidance anywhere in the world actually looking at isolation in all forms of detention, 
and what what we would expect to find that is consistent with with, with human rights standards in both a, a secure hospital but also a prison and a police station so that that kind of work is really important it takes time we have as an npm we have very limited resources to do that sort of cross-cutting work but we 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 hope to do more of it in in the future and the individual members of the NPM also bring in human rights into their work in very specific ways. I, I can give you a good, good example of that. When I was chief inspector of prisons, there was a lot of pressure on the inspectorate to say that we should be inspecting by the standards of the prison service set itself. And the inspectorate had always quite rightly resisted that, and I continued to do that. And the fact that we were part of the NPM gave you a really strong basis to say, actually, it's not about the compliance with your standards because your standards, even if that's all you can do right now, may not be compliant with human rights. And one of the examples that I would give at, a much, at the other end of the spectrum from Louise's example is that it is really common in our prisons, well, not as common as it was, but still too common, for two men in a prison to be sharing a cell that was built for one with an unscreened toilet in the cell and they have to sit on the toilet to eat their meals. Now, I cannot think of another public building in the United Kingdom where that would be allowed to happen. Um, but because it, just because it's normal, it shouldn't be normative. And the fact that the inspector continues to say that that is wrong asking, as I say, the question, not is it possible, but is it right? I think it's really important in try in focusing on, on some of the things that are going on behind those closed doors. Because the, the, the human rights approach is looking at it from through a lens of values. Exactly. R- rather than practicality or resources or you know, any of the million other Yes, and it's not necessarily about blaming the prison or the establishment itself. Prison staff don't like it any more than we do. Um, but, but actually, it's, it's important that, as you say, you're looking at what is the actual outcome for this prisoner or detainee, and is it the kind of thing that in our society we ought to, it ought to happen? My experience of prison staff, and maybe this, this does or doesn't accord with yours, is generally speaking, they, the, re, the ones that last are the ones that are worried and bothered about how prisoners are, the conditions the prisoners are existing in. And they're, they're almost... You know, I, 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 my impression is that a lot of them are their key skill is the pastoral, pastoral skill rather than a security or, you know, administration or any of that. I think good. I think that's absolutely true of good prison staff, and for that reason, they hate being called warders, because that implies that they're sort of looking, sort of looking after objects rather than people. Um, and, and I think quite often, as in, if you're inspecting or monitoring, it would be the staff that take you aside and say, actually, I think you need to look at that, or actually, we're really worried about this person. Um, uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, you can, um, you can assist good staff to be, to, to be, to be good and to be better and, and to have the confidence to call things out, which is quite difficult in a hierarchical organization sometimes. I used to sometimes say when I was inspecting prisons that there was a thing called the virtual prison and that ran in the governor's office and it was absolutely wonderful because nobody (laughs) up the line wanted to tell anybody else higher up the line of things that were going wrong. Uh, And so that reality check, which actually good governors welcome um, and can reinforce good staff practices is an important part of inspection and monitoring, I think. I would agree with that, Anne. Um, and certainly the experience in the youth estate, by and large, the prison staff are well-trained, very well-motivated, and a very interesting profile of young women and young men coming into the service, as well as 
staff who've been there a little bit longer, and they're bringing an enthusiasm to the way they manage and work with some of the most damaged children, because about 30% of the children in custody are looked after children prior to coming in. Then when they move into the secure estate, they're all looked after. So these are really vulnerable young people, and the staff are working very positively with them, both in terms of the day-to-day -day regime, but also in terms of some of the really innovative programs that are now being rolled out in the youth estate. Uh, there's one called Secure Stairs, which is a whole system landing approach to managing a therapeutic community and the prison staff and the boys and the psychologists and the teachers form a team to work with each of the individuals. So there is some really good stuff going on, supported by excellent staff. I'm going to end it there because we've we've ended on a positive note and I, I think that's always a good place to, to stop especially with um, detention <laughs> but thank you so much um, for, 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 for joining me and for giving us an insight into what is a, an area of society which is a really important one but not one that many people see aside from um, TV programs which may or may not be accurate um, so thanks very much and keep thank up the good work okay bye bye the Better Human podcast is supported by your contributions. If you find it useful and interesting, I would really appreciate if you consider giving just $3 a month. That's just over £2 via our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash better human. And if a couple of hundred people do that, then that will make the podcast sustainable and I can carry on interviewing interesting guests about fascinating human rights subjects. Um, so thanks very much, Malcolm, for coming on the podcast. Do you want to talk about first, Malcolm, your involvement in detention monitoring? Sure, yes. Um, well, I'm chair of the United Nations Subcommittee for the Prevention of Torture. This body was established by a United Nations instrument, and it really has got two vital functions as regards detention monitoring. First, it sets up an international committee known as the SBT, which has got the power to visit any place of detention in any of the 90 states parties to that instrument, to go into them, to interview people, to look at any form of documentation at any time it wishes without notice or permission from the states parties to the system. But alongside that, um, it requires that every country uh, in the system sets up an independent body which can do the same sort of work itself. So we have an international detention monitoring system and a national one under this umbrella. The point is to go in, find out what is really happening in these places and then have discussions with the national authorities on what can be done to reduce the risk of torture and ill treatment in those places of detention based on what we have seen and what we have heard and what we have found. Quite a significant part, as, as people who have been listening to this podcast through um, from the beginning, of detention monitoring is about visiting prisons. Um, now, obviously, COVID-19 has hit wider society, but also prisons. Is that having an effect on detention monitoring? Absolutely, yes. One of the very first things that happened when the extent of the pandemic became apparent and restrictions were put in place 
was that in very many countries, monitoring of closed places of detention ceased. The reasons were that they were uh, trying to restrict social access to ensure that people did not go in who could be carriers of the virus, which is understandable enough. But the net result for many in places of detention meant that there was a lack of external scrutiny over the manner in which they were being treated. More besides, in order to try to control the spread of viruses within places of detention, um, internal movement was restricted, prisoners were subject to lockdown um, for much of the day, no out-of-cell time or very little, and for many, most importantly, restricted access to the outside world, so an inability to meet family, friends, etc., etc., and as a result, um, a gr great diminution of the uh, regime activities and the opportunities for those within detention places. And so you have this, this twin, twin prong problem, a sudden imposition of much greater restrictions on those in prisons and coupled with a removal of the ability of external, um, external agencies to formally uh, exercise oversight as well as for the contact with friends, families and others that is so important to detainees. And so you've got a bit of a double double whammy there of problems because you've got on the one hand COVID-19 and social distancing requirements affecting the regime in a way which may um, particularly in, in relation to solitary confinement or hygiene or, or, or susceptibility, I suppose, vulnerability to um, health issues that raises potential inhuman and degrading treatment issues. But at the same time, you're losing some of the opportunity to monitor through um, communication and also visiting. Absolutely. And it must be said straight out that there is something virgin on the vaguely obscene in many countries in talking about um, increased times of locking people up in their cells in order to preserve social distancing. The amount of overcrowding in many of these facilities is such that the net result of this is to enforce that they're spending very much more time in very close proximity um, to, to others. The last thing it does is promote social distancing. It may stop mobility within, within prisons, but, but the idea that the person can socially distance in the overcrowded cells in many countries um, of, of, of the globe is, um, is, is uh, a farce too many. And, and how are prisons, um, if they are, um, allowing prisoners to exercise? How is that? Because it's a requirement, and isn't it, under human rights law, that they are given some sort of access, although it's, it's, people might see it as poultry, but, you know, a, a, a bit of access each day to, you know, outside of their cell. Absolutely. There, there is a, um, a minimum requirement of an hour's outdoor exercise per day uh, for every person in in detention, um, often th this is you know not always respected by any means, but it is is the minimum. But even that minimum is premised on the idea that many detainees will be spending a good portion of their day outside of their cell, um, doing other things in any case. And so, for, so for those for whom that one hour is the only time that they're out of that cell, that is clearly inadequate in and of itself because the other assumptions 
um, about external activities and contact are, are not being met. And in very many systems, that time out of cell will also be used for essential out of cell activities, such as washing, for example, showering, and, and so on and so forth. Um, and, and so it is a very limited uh, time span that many will have. Now, as a result of this, one of the responses which we as a committee have been insisting upon um, is, first of all, that countries should look, particularly those whose facilities are grossly overcrowded, should be seeking to reduce the levels of overcrowding within um, within their within their prisons and other detention facilities. It should be said, particularly immigration detention, to try to at least bring occupancy down to the official levels. Although we understand that the official levels are often um, rather generously calculated, shall we say? But at least that would be a start. But also that efficient and effective mitigation measures are put in place to preserve social contact with those outside of the prison for the detainees. And I have to say, one of the things that we have noted already in many systems is that the uh, speed with which the authorities have restricted access by the outside world to places of detention has not been matched with similar speed in putting mitigation measures in place, such as improved access to telephones, video conferencing links, etc., etc. Some have. Others have not. And what's the picture looking like in the UK? Well, within the UK, um, again, in the initial phases, as I understand it, there were suggestions that there would be a, uh, a quite a considerable prisoner release scheme where those who were coming to the end of their sentences would be released to relieve overcrowding and create better space for prison management. But it's not only the uh, question of overcrowding is the problem, but where you have new admissions coming in, the need to have the space to properly quarantine those coming into prisons for the first time and ensure better distancing uh, means that you really could need less in prison. The reality is that very little was achieved in this regard and not long after the promises were made, my understanding is that these were not followed through and the program ceased. On the other hand, I believe following some court decisions, following judicial review, there has been quite major um, changes to the numbers being held in immigration detention, which is to be welcome. But the picture across the piece has been patchy. And there have been, of course, many cases of coronavirus within UK prisons estates and, unfortunately, deaths too. Well, I suppose that the, the difference with the um, immigration detention is it's easier for the Secretary of State, um, for the Home Department, for the Home Secretary to simply release a, a large group of prisoners because it's her it's her decision whereas in the prisoner state it's slightly more complicated being able to get people out of the door you know if they're for, if, if they need to be released by the parole board for example but that that should be sorted within you know that should be dealable with within a couple of months i would have thought Indeed. And we are aware that, of course, we've been monitoring what's been happening around the world in relation to this. And it is certainly the case that in some countries, they have lacked the legal capacity to be able to permit early release as many as some have wished to do. Although in some instances, countries have rushed through emergency legislation to allow this to be the case. Um, what we do find is that Many of the things which previously were considered to be un impossible to achieve within the prison estate as a result of the coronavirus 
um, uh, pandemic have indeed proven to be possible. Um, some countries that said they had a, uh, it was impossible to reduce the prison population to the official occupancy levels to avoid overcrowding have in fact managed to do so. Um, others which said it was simply not possible on security grounds to allow enhanced access to telephones, electronic communication, etc., for detainees, that has all proven possible. Um, and so um, many of the uh, reasons uh, that have been given for failing to do things which have been advocated for many years have suddenly fallen away in some jurisdictions. And whilst that is to be welcomed, um, it is also a, a question of why this has not been done before. Well, I suppose the um, crises can lead to um, a, a shaking up of the of, of the arena in such a way as as the impossible suddenly becomes possible. I think we we, we see that across the piece uh, with the political response to coronavirus. Um, but do, absolutely, sorry, yes, carry on. I, I was just going to ask: do, do you think that the in in the UK at least there's there's going to be any lasting changes as a result of what's happened, or are we going to flip back to exactly where we were before? Well, two things. Um, I certainly hope we don't flip back to where we were before because. Um, for the reasons just given. I think there has been some very helpful rethinking taking place about what the custodial estate really needs to be used for, how it needs to be configured and operated. Um, and given some of the, the changes that have been put in place, and I stress again, particularly as regards contact with the outside world, I see little reason to roll that back once greater internal freedoms become possible when the strictures of restrictions within the penal estate um, can in themselves be released. That is a positive that I think can be taken forward. Similarly, I mentioned at the outset that many countries um, um, immediately put barriers on external agencies exercising oversight, visiting mechanisms and so forth. Um, what has happened in a very large number of countries, including this, is that those agencies responsible for exercising independent oversight have responded to the challenge by finding new and innovative means of exercising their responsibilities, redefining and rethinking what it means to be exercising external scrutiny when the traditional means through which that were done were not possible. And many have been greatly shall we say, surprised at the at the effectiveness of some of the alternatives that they've been putting in, in place. Different types of visiting, using greater use of um, telephones, electronic equipment in order to be able to interview and speak to detainees, video walkthroughs, monitoring remotely, etc., etc. Um, uh, examining documentation, raising questions, in ways that previously were not the case and so on. So there has been a lot of interesting, innovative practice that when taken forward could enhance the um, experience of transparency and monitoring places of detention as well. So you're quite right that emergency situations do prompt a change of, of approach simply because they have to. And there are some positive practices which have come out of this, which are to be welcomed. I might also say, from a, my position as chair of the Subcommittee on Prevention of, of Torture, um, we have reached out to states and national preventive mechanisms to know more of what they have been doing and to support um, them in uh, national mechanisms in what they have been doing in a, in, a, in a new way. And the response that we have had to that from 
both states' parties and NPMs has been terrific. Um, it doesn't always mean that they've been doing great things, but the level of engagement with the system and the issues has has been um, surprising and gratifying. And it has lent a new sense of connection, shall we say, between both the international mechanisms and the national mechanisms, but also between national mechanisms themselves, as they have shared experiences and supported each other. And so, as in any um, crisis of this nature, hugely tragic um, it is in so many ways, but the response that people have had to them in some ways, as is so often the case, is both positive and negative factors. There are positives here in terms of things that we can learn, that we can build on moving forward with better policies and practice in place as a result. I would like to finish there because that's the positive. I do, I do have one more question, which is a slightly more negative one. Do we know how badly COVID-19 is affecting prisoners? Um, we'll, we'll just stick to the UK here. Um, and, 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 and also, I guess, prison staff. Well, it's a difficult one, um, if only because it's very difficult. We, we obviously know a good deal about the numbers who have contracted the virus, who sadly have died from the virus, what this has done and what the effects of this on, on, on relationships within prisons between um, staff and detainees is something that will only be able to be outworked over, over time. I have to say some indications are, and this may seem paradoxical, are in some places may have served to improve relationships as they perhaps see through their formal relationships and strip back a little to the, you know, to the humanity of the situation um, um, that, they, that they find themselves in. So once again, it may not necessarily be a negative. But other lessons have also been learned, and one of the key ones, not just in this country but globally, has been the need, it may sound trite, but it's true, for much better communication about what is going on and an understanding of, of, the, of, of such situations. One of the most tragic things that has happened has been the number of people who have been killed in riots in prisons in numerous countries around the world following the imposition of restrictions uh, which were not properly explained, that people couldn't understand the reasons for, and that they responded negatively to. And in, numer in a number of countries, there have been riots against the restrictions that have tragically led to even greater loss of life than has been caused by the virus itself. And these are issues that should never happen. They can be handled if people had greater, shall we say, understanding of the situation that detainees, but also of staff working in such places, are working under. I think we'll leave it there. Um, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, um, Professor Sir Malcolm Evans. Thank you very much indeed. So thank you very much to all of my guests. I thought that was an absolutely amazing insight into an area of our civic system which really isn't very well known certainly i didn't know very much about before this podcast the better human podcast is supported by goldsmith's law and their pioneering new llb undergraduate course taught in london their program prepares you for the 21st century legal practice and is a great first step to a legal career if you want to support this podcast which is self-funded please consider giving just a few pounds a month at www.betterhumanpodcast.com my name is adam wagner this is the better human podcast thank you and goodbye